All right, so as we're continuing our series this morning on why we believe what we believe about the end times, does anybody remember what our first lesson was over? Okay, it was over the rapture. No, you're good. Okay, then you were out here for this one. What was the next one? The tribulation period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah, real. you were gonna. You, you would have yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, got me. This week, we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage of the Lamb. And I was actually talking about this a little bit yesterday with a few people. When I was putting together the lesson for the tribulation period, there wasn't a whole lot. There wasn't like a lot of Bible to talk about. Uh, there are the seven seals and the different things in the book of Revelation that kind of goes through some things. But even that is from a heavenly narrative. It's what's going on during the tribulation Finally. period. Thank you. But as it relates to uh, sort of how it manifests itself from heaven. So like there's the lamb that appears, which will be Christ. And uh, only the lamb is able to open the seven seals. And the seven seals send different things to the earth for the tribulation period. And it's different things like that. So it's the tribulation period, but even that is from the heavenly perspective. And it's very different than like people get all caught up in the Left Behind series. And uh, the new Left Behind movie that came out uh, this week and so forth. And people like to use that as an opportunity of witnessing. And it's a bad, it's, a, it's, it's not the way the gospel is meant to be given. The tribulation period and telling people about how scary and horrible it's going to be during the tribulation period is not what Christ meant for us to do when we witness to people. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to tell them about the hope and the joy of salvation and the love of Christ and dying on the cross for us. Because what happens is if we make the center point the tribulation period and avoiding that, that takes away from the focus being on Christ. Because it's not about Jesus, and it's not about his love for us, or what he does for us. It's about us escaping some terrible fate. So, salvation in the gospel should really be given from the narrative of the love of Christ toward undeserving sinners. And that's what it should be. The tribulation period in this study, this is for people who are already Christians. You're already saved. This is not for people who are not saved. If they become Christians out of fear, they're not going to be motivated to obey Christ. Those are those people who get their ticket to heaven and you never see them again. Right? They get saved and then they don't live the Christian life because they weren't properly motivated when they received the gospel. So we shouldn't be placing such a huge emphasis on the tribulation period. There were well-written books, the, uh, the Left Behind series, that Kirk Cameron... Uh, starred in the movies of and then they tried to redo it with Nick Cage and it didn't work and now they've redone them again with a different actor and it's just something people get so caught up in and I think as somebody who's been involved in that series very heavily in the past it's it's dangerous to get too focused on all the wrong things right so that's why this morning we're going to be talking about the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage of the Lamb Let's start in Romans 14 this morning. In the book of Romans chapter 14, we see the Apostle Paul 
And when he's writing this book, it's not to a specific church. It's to Christians of that region at large. So Romans 14, uh, I want to start reading in verse 10. And it says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So that right there tells you that the judgment seat of Christ isn't something that is for lost people. Right? The judgment seat of Christ is for the people he's writing to. It's for the Christians at large. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11 says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account shall give account of himself to God. So this is a judgment seat. We stand before the, the throne of Christ, and we will give an account of how we lived our life. Now, what is that judgment going to look like? Some people think that we're going to be standing before God, and it's going to play like a movie, different scenes of our life and how we lived our life, the good and the bad, and that, that God will judge us in that moment afterwards. I don't think that's the case. I think there are other verses we're going to look at in a minute that's, that are going to describe in greater detail what that judgment seat is going to look like. And it'll be a little bit different. Um, we do know that there will be some comment about our lives from the Lord. In the Gospels, Jesus tells the story about the different uh, kind of servants that appear before their master when he returns. And that's a parallel to us when we stand before the judgment seat. And there were two responses that he gave uh, to those there. One was, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, cast into outer darkness. Those are the lost people that sit in church that think they're saved, uh, but never actually accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they say, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in thy name, and in thy name cast out demons, and in thy name do these things? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And then there's another crowd that comes to them and is... Uh, a, a blessing of a servant, a profitable servant and so forth. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And those are the two responses we see that he parallels there. But I don't think it's going to be a, a highlight reel of our lives displayed there at the judgment seat. Um, let's go now to 2 Corinthians 5. turn this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to look at verse 10, which also says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So we see a little bit more color here. Now when we stand before the judgment seat, we're going to receive something. We're going to receive the things that we earned uh, as we were rewarded according to the things done in our body, right? So in our physical human body here on the earth, the actions that we chose to take, we will receive rewards for 
those things. And the rewards will be really good things if we choose to do good things. And we're going to get into what those things are going to be here in a little bit. But uh, the things we receive will be according to what we've done, whether they were good or whether they were bad. We'll determine what kind of thing it is that we receive. So now let's backtrack a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to see in verse 12 what these things we earn will be. Now, we're talking about above this uh, in verses 10 and 11, uh, a foundation built upon the Lord Jesus Christ and how you can't build any other upon any other foundation than the foundation which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. So what we're talking about is building upon that. The, the Bible, and even in, second, even in Peter, refers to us as uh, a, a building, a temple, a tabernacle, built up under the Lord. So we see here in verse 12, it says, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. And notice it says in verse 13, Every man's work shall be made manifest. Okay, that's a really big phrase. Because what it's saying there is your actions will become tangible objects. They will become things you can actually handle with your own hands. Every lie you ever told will either become wood or hay or stubble. And every time you chose to be generous, you chose to be encouraging to a brother and sister in Christ, you chose to be helpful, you chose to give the gospel to somebody, every time you chose to do something good, that is gold, silver, and precious stones. And they'll be made manifest. The actions you take in your life will be actual things you'll earn in heaven. This is real. And then it says, For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. So what's going to happen is these things are going to be made manifest. And I think instead of a highlight reel showing your life, the things that you did in your life will become a pile of objects in front of you. And in that moment, you'll see whether you earned more precious stones, you earned more gold and silver, or if you earned more wood and hay and stubble. And you'll see the comparison of the two there in front of you. And then what will happen is they're going to catch it on fire. The Lord's going to catch these things on fire. A big fire will appear before these objects. And, if, and all the wood and the hay and the stubble will burn up and it'll be gone. And those things that are going to endure will be the good things that you've earned in your life. The gold and the silver and the precious stones. Because it says, it shall, the day shall declare it. It shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Right there in verse 13. Verse 14 says, If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's works shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. 
So in other words, you're not losing your salvation in that, mo in that moment. You're still saved. You're still going to heaven. But if you don't live the Christian life to the best of your ability, you're going to have less reward than other people who did. And this life we live, life expectancy, a little better than it used to be. I don't know what it is now. It's probably 80, mid-80s, maybe even 90s, something like that, if you're really fortunate to live a long, happy life. And that's the most you get out of this life. The Christian needs to understand one thing very clearly. YOLO is a lie. Okay, can I, can I share that with you? you? Everybody know what YOLO stands for? No? Okay. It stands for you only live once. Right? So the idea is you only get one life to live. You need to go out and live it to the fullest. You need to experience things. You need to try things. Because you only live once, you may as well try it out. Right? That's basically what YOLO means. It's a lie. We need to understand this morning you don't only live this one life. We live in eternity in heaven. So live conservatively. Live as though you're saving up rewards for yourself in heaven. Right? YOLO is a lie. We don't only live once. So in that day, we will, earn, we will obtain the rewards we earn now in our lives, in these moments right here in life right now. So, he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. In other words, that fire is not going to consume us. It's going to consume the, the things we did in life that weren't according to the Christian life, according to what the Bible tells us to do. So let's take a look at Revelation 4 now. So we've, we've sort of, we've laid the groundwork for the concept, right, of this judgment seat of Christ. So we know what it's about. Now we're going to go to the book of Revelation and we're going to see the events of this judgment seat of Christ sort of played out. Because remember we said that while the tribulation period is taking place on earth, we won't be here for it. So it doesn't matter how well we know about it. We're not going to be here. I love Sylvia said something. She's in the Sunday school class right now, but she said something yesterday about hoping when that tribulation period comes, all the Bibles that she's got in her house, that maybe somebody would come across them and read them and learn how to escape some of the terrible things that will happen in the tribulation period by getting saved and accepting Christ as their Savior and so forth. And I thought that was a really uh, sweet thought. Uh, but we won't be here for any of the things going on, so it doesn't really concern us too terribly much. Uh, the only thing we need to concern ourselves with are the things in Scripture, because it's in the Bible, right? Therefore, the Lord thought it important enough for us to know about. But in Revelation 4, what we see and what there's more information about for us is the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage of the Lamb. So in verse 4 it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. Now, in the past, that would have been a pretty impossible thing to consider, right? How could a trumpet, someone's voice, sound like a trumpet, but it's talking? Well, they have done some pretty amazing things with technology. You've heard some of those voice filters that people can do? And uh, some of them make it sound like actual instruments that are talking. 
through other people's voices, and it's a pretty incredible thing. So someone's voice as eloquent as a musical trumpet speaking in heaven, which said, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. In other words, the future. And immediately, John says, I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and sardine stone. Those are the purest, white, precious gems there are. They, they to see the light shine off of them would to hurt would hurt your eyes. They're so when they're so pure and so white. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So it's not like the rainbows you see outside in the, in the sky after a rain, and it's sort of a refraction of light uh, after the rain and so forth. You can't actually find the end of a rainbow. You can't actually chase the end of a rainbow because it's a light reflection. It's always going to be that distance from you, or else you wouldn't be able to see it at all. But in heaven, the rainbow that covers the top of the throne, it won't be a light refraction. It will be glistening like an emerald. It will be like a precious stones laid out in the different stones covering the entire top of the throne. Morning, you guys. So even the, the rainbow talking about here will be different than the rainbows we know today. Verse 4 of Revelation chapter 4 says, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. Now, these four and twenty seats that are filled by twenty-four people, they're going to be significant. I'm going to tell you who they, who I think they are uh, here in a minute. And it says, And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, it's my personal opinion that these twenty-four elders are, twelve of them will be the heads of the twelve tribes, possibly even the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And the other 12, I believe, will be the 12 apostles, uh, 11 of which were disciples. You say, how is that possible? Because didn't one of them, Judas Iscariot, kill himself? And we found out he was never actually saved. Don't forget also in Acts chapter 1, Judas's lot was given to another person. Right? They cast the lots, and the lots fell upon another man. Does anybody remember what that man's name was? No. Matthias. Matthias. Oh, it was the same as Matthew. Matthias. Yeah, it's a good name. Yeah. Surprise. Yeah, well, I, I didn't pick it. You know. Either time. <laughs> But uh, so, yeah, so that's who I think the 24 elders are going to be. And I think they are basically representative of the other members of the saved that will be there at large. You don't think Paul right. will be one of them? I don't think so. I think he was a very specific kind of apostle. I think the 12 were apostles to, like, the Jews. Right. And he was, he was separate from the 12 because right. I think he was the apostle of the Gentiles. Right, so I definitely think he'll be there, and I think he'll hold some sort of important place. But I don't think he's part of these 24 specifically. Yeah. 
Um, very good question, though. So yeah, so you've got the 24 elders there, and there, there is no debating that they do represent what's going to be happening with the rest of the saved that are there at large. Now, the saved does also include Old Testament saints, right? So that's why I think 12 of these 24 are going to be representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? because you've got Old Testament saints there as well. So you've got all of the saved there, and I think this a bit applies to all of them where it says they were clothed in white raiment. Now, we need to talk about this white raiment, because to John, it would look like white raiment, but I don't think it was actually white raiment. Anybody remember what happened to Moses when he went on top of uh, Mount Sinai and he was there for all those 40 days? What happened when he came back down? His face was shining with the brightness of the glory of God because he'd spent so much time in the presence of God and it was scaring everybody. So he had to go into a tent and put on a mask and cover up the glow so people wouldn't be scared to come around him. That is what happens when you're in the presence of God and I think this white raiment isn't actually white raiment. I think we will be clothed or covered with the physical manifestation of the glory of God. I think that's what that's going to be. I don't think it's an actual white raiment. But to John, when he sees that and he looks at it, it looks like they're wearing white raiment. Pure white, bright clothing. So that's what that is. Um, white raiment, and they had on their head crowns of gold. Now, there are five crowns that the Bible talks about being able to receive here on earth. Right? And we, the average Christian is able to obtain four out of the five. There is one crown reserved specifically for pastors. But the rest of the other four, anybody can earn. And they, then the Apostle Paul goes through them. I'll Actually, I want to do a series on those five crowns at some point. So I think that'll be a, a good lesson to go through. And I think these are the crowns that we see here that are on the 24 elders. They will definitely have most of those crowns at least. Uh, but the rest of us, it will determine, again, how we live our Christian life, not just the gold and the silver and the precious stones that we will earn in our lifetime, but also how many of those crowns you earn are dependent upon how you live the Christian life right now. In your day and time right now, how you live and how you abide by the law and how uh, you obey the commandments of Christ and how faithful you are to the Lord. All of these things will determine the crowns that you receive. We're going to go over that in our series when we get to it, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah? Does that include the precious stones? And stuff? I think the precious stones, the gold, the silver, and the precious stones that weren't burnt up with the wood hand stubble we mentioned before, I think that's going to be a different. There's going to be that, and then there's also going to be the five crowns. Right? Because you remember in the, the Gospels, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, right? Where moth does not corrupt, or where thieves cannot break through and steal. We're going to get to in a minute what happens to these crowns. But essentially, we don't keep them, right? But there will still be treasure laid up for us in heaven, and I think that's the gold and silver and precious stones that weren't burnt up in the trial by fire. So, and it says in verse 5, uh, out of the throne proceeded uh, lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, 
which are the seven spirits of God. Personally, what I see here is God sort of putting on a show for all of those in attendance here at the judgment seat. Because it's a judgment seat, right? It's a, it's, you stand before a judge. That's an intimidating thing, and it's supposed to be, right? So I think here that Jesus specifically is displaying his authority, you know, as the judge of the world. Because up to this point, he's revealed himself as a savior. He's revealed himself as a sort of a loving, compassionate savior. But he does have that other side of himself who uh, is the judge and is uh God and stands before and as a matter of fact when you read his description in Revelation 1 he's very intimidating to look at in his truest form there in heaven so I think at this point he is sort of setting himself apart as this great judge and not just the man that walked among us during the gospel times so I can't imagine this is going to be an incredible thing to behold it says in verse 6 and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. So you've heard maybe in some of the songs that we sing, some of the hymns that we sing uh, here in church, the phrase, the crystal sea, across the crystal sea and so forth. That's what this is talking about. It is a large, evidently looks like a body of water, but it's not. It's made of precious stone. It's made of crystal. And uh, again, one of those things, I can't begin to imagine what that must look like. I can't wait to see it. There was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. That is a very, just really creepy thing to think about, isn't it? These creatures, their entire body in front and behind, were covered in eyeballs before and behind. That's what it's saying here. Uh, that's just one of the things that makes these, these creatures a little uh, off. But the first beast was like a lion. Not a lion, not literally a lion, but like a lion. Right? So what could, that could be a griffin. It could be something we've never heard of before. Probably is. The second beast, like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And again, remember, all of these creatures covered in eyeballs. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and also, we don't get a whole lot else descriptive about these creatures. And I think that's on purpose. I think there's a lot of things that are meant to be sort of a surprise for us when we get there. But we see all of these creatures being described and being uh, explained as to what exactly they are. And they're, they're, they're intimidating to think about. That's a really scary thing to look upon. And again, don't forget, we're still at the judgment seat. right? So there's supposed to be some intimidation here. There's a reason the judge has a bailiff. right? The bailiff is standing there to sort of intimidate somebody from becoming aggressive or, or, you know, making a run at the judge or doing something violent. That's what the bailiff is there for. And I think these creatures are there for a similar purpose. They're there for a sort of intimidation. They're there to, to, to let us know these big, scary, terrifying creatures, they answer to Jesus, right? And so it's a bit like, you know, somebody having their dog chained up in the front yard. 
and you don't want to walk in their yard, they might be an intimidating person themselves, but especially because they've got a big scary dog in the front yard. Right? And I think these creatures are meant to show us these big terrifying monstrous creatures answer to the man sitting on the throne. And so it sort of it also adds to uh, the sense of judgment that will be there. Uh, the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes. So even the wings have eyeballs on them. Uh, within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. So they teach us something here about God. And it's extremely significant. The Bible just tells us that God and these creatures express to us that God exists in the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. So, so what does that mean? That means, essentially, that God exists outside of time. The rules of time don't apply to God because He's eternal. He exists outside of time. He sort of looks at all of human history and all of the Earth's timeline at once. We're like in the parade and we're going through it and we're experiencing it. He's got a bird's eye view and he sees the whole thing all at once. And that's what these creatures just taught us about God. Verse 9 said, When those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. So this is that part I was talking about earlier. Those crowns that we earn, we will take and we will cast at the feet of Jesus. Right? And everybody else, you, you ever been a part of something so everybody's got and they're participating in and, and you feel a little left out because you don't have one? You know? Uh, you ever like been playing water guns in the summer as a kid? And uh, everybody's got their big super soaker 9000 and stuff like that. And you're like, uh, <laughs> I can get a water balloon. You know, you don't want to feel left out in that moment. And it is going to be one of those things where if you see somebody else, they've got four crowns and they're casting all four or five of those crowns at the feet of Jesus. You, you're going to be standing next to him with one. You know, how do we fix that? How do we resolve that? By how we live our life right now. We'll determine how good it is for us at that judgment seat. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, and this is the four and twenty elders, and in my opinion, all of those that the four and twenty elders represent as well. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Notice that phrase there at the very end of chapter 4. It said, they are and were created. What does that mean? That means that God is not finished with his work of creation. That he will continue to create after the events of these end times take place. Maybe even at some point during these end times. He will continue to create. Maybe these beasts that we just read about were new creations. Maybe we witnessed Jesus creating these creatures. I don't know. It's a possibility. But we know that God's not done creating. 
So really you think about it like this. We're talking about end times, right? It's the end of one thing. But that means it's also the beginning of something brand new. And that's an exciting thing. Revelation chapter 5 we're going to look at now. And in Revelation 5, we're going to start reading in verse 8, I believe. Yeah, so in this passage, we're talking about, uh, it's getting to the, those seals we mentioned before. Uh, the different seals on the book and so forth. And the lamb who was worthy to open the seals. And in verse 8, it says, When he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. Right, Which is another reason I think they represent Old and New Testament saints, if they're holding the vials of odors, which are the, the prayers of saints. Uh, and verse 9 says, And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, uh, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So, you, you might say, well, that's not a very good song, doesn't even rhyme. <laughs> It's not in its original language, right? It's the original language, I believe. It's that original language that existed before the Tower of Babel, right? That language which is probably the language that's spoken in heaven. It's that heavenly, it's that divine tongue, that God language, that heavenly language. That we really, before we're citizens of America, we are firstly and foremost citizens of heaven. And we have our own tongue. You'd say, but pastor, I don't know how to speak that tongue. Well, you won't need to worry about it. Remember Acts chapter 2? Every man heard in their own language. Gift of tongues. They called it the gift of tongues, but really it was the gift of ears. Remember we said that? Now, why would they call it the gift of tongues? Because God wants you to know he has power not just over the ear, but over the tongue as well. And just like the Tower of Babel, he can make the human tongue to speak whatever language he wants it to. Which means when we get to heaven, he can just make it so that we all speak that heavenly language. There won't be language barriers in heaven. Everybody will speak that one language. And I assume in that language, these words take on more poetry. It says in verse 11, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders. And notice this, this is another reason why I think we'll all be there, behind those four and twenty elders, it says, And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. Now, you might be saying, Pastor, it seems like to me it's talking about the angels there. That's how many angels will be there. That's how many of those beasts will be there, the combination of all three. But I think when it says them, and it's using that pronoun there, I think we're talking about a, a different category of creature altogether. Because we know it's 24 elders, right? And we know that it's four beasts, right? We know these numbers. So I think the them that it's talking about is Old and New Testament saints. 
And we will be there in this moment. So what is this? This is the judgment seat of Christ. And it is, I think uh, we're, we're nearing the end of this judgment seat and the beginning of the next part uh, that will be the crux, the main part of that seven years. Uh, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Each of those things describing the lamb that was slain, which is, of course, Jesus. Behold the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Let's uh, fast forward now to Revelation 11. Because we're, we're nearing the part where it's no longer the judgment seat. The works have been made manifest and so forth. Now we're worshiping and praising the lamb that was slain. We're worshiping and praising Jesus as he sits on his throne. In Revelation 11, we see that transition uh, even more so. In verse, uh, I think we're going to start in verse 16. Because Revelation 11 does take place in the middle of these uh, different tribulation period events. Right? But we're looking specifically this morning at the judgment seat and the marriage of the Lamb. It says in verse 16, The four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come. Again, that concept of God existing outside of our concept of time. Time doesn't happen to God. Uh, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, um, thy wrath is come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets and to the saints and to them that fear thy name small and great and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. So real quick, let me backtrack for you real quick. It's another way we know we've got the timeline right because the lamb is sitting on the throne. Right? So this is not what we'll read about later is a, is a judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment. And it is a different judgment than the one we're reading about here. And we know that because we just read in verse 18 that as this judgment is happening here in Revelation 11, they said the time of, uh, that the time of the dead, that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, um, that time is drawing near, is what they're saying. The time of the dead that they should be judged. That is the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to talk about uh, what the judgment seat of Christ is, but it is not for the saved. The judgment seat of Christ is for the rest of the earth. Right. So we know this great white throne judgment, this comes first. Because they're talking about this judgment seat of Christ, the, the great white throne judgment, at the judgment seat of Christ. So the judgment seat of Christ comes first. We know that must be true because of verse 18. Verse 19 says, The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. We found the ark of the covenant, guys. <laughs> God built a temple in heaven and took it up there. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake, and great hail. And again, it's a lot like standing at the base of Mount Sinai. 
the lightnings and thunderings and hails and earthquakes, those were all happening at Sinai as well. And, and what is, the, what is the, the similarity? Number one is that it's the presence of God. You're standing in the presence of God. Number two is a matter of judgments, right? Because they were getting what? The Ten Commandments. They were getting more than the Ten Commandments, by the way. God was instructing Moses on how to build the tabernacle, how to build the different pieces of furniture, what the dimensions were be, what materials they should use. He was going into great detail about all these instructions, so it was a lot more than just the Ten Commandments he was getting up there on Mount Sinai. So for that 40 days, that's what they were doing. But that was the similarity. It was the presence of God in his place of judgment, giving us the Ten Commandments and giving us his laws. And it's the same way here in the book of Revelation. We're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, and as he's judging us, it's the same things, thunder and lightning and earthquakes and hail. We saw that as it began, and now we're seeing it again sort of at the close. It's almost like, to me, I imagine sort of like, uh, you know, certain special events and shows that will have pyrotechnics, you know. And to me, that's our way of sort of simulating what God can just naturally do for himself. It's our best event, fireworks and things like that, is our best attempt at a, a cheap version of what God does better than anybody. Right, so I think he's he's doing that and displaying that here in Revelation 11, here at this judgment seat. Um, and then in verse, yeah, and so we're we're drawing this to a close now. Let's let's jump over to Revelation 19 now. So he opens the judgment seat with the lightnings and the thunderings and so forth, and then he closes the judgment seat with those things as well. And Revelation 19. Uh, in verse 4, it says, The four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That word omnipotent, it means all-powerful. He says in verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice. So now we're transitioning from the judgment seat to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. All right, you theologians. Who's the bride of Christ? Church. That's us. And so this is the final nail in the coffin to know for sure that, yes, we were there during all of these events because he's referring to the bride of the Lamb, the Lamb being Jesus, so the bride of the Lamb being the bride of Christ, and as we've said, the bride of Christ is the church. All of us. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So that's different than the white rain that we talked about earlier. The fine linen being the purity of the church. And in verse 9 it says, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb will be what we spend most of that 10 years on. First 10 years, I'm sorry, seven years. What we spend most of that seven years doing will be the longest and greatest party you've ever been a part of. Literally. We will be spending seven years celebrating with Jesus, with the angels, in the presence of the Heavenly Father. They're in heaven. And we will have received our new glorified bodies. So you won't get tired. How many of you have ever been to a party before and uh, you get a little ways into the party and you start feeling tired, you're ready to go home, go to bed? Right? We've all been there before. You know, you get to that party and you've been talking for a while, you're enjoying the company and you're having a good time. And then you just kind of feel it fall on you sort of all of a sudden, don't you? You just, your shoulders start to feel a little heavy. You know, you find yourself resisting that urge to yawn a lot. You know, you're stretching maybe a little more, kind of getting up and having to walk around a little bit so you don't get tired. You're thinking to yourself, I wonder how long this party's going to go. You know, that's not going to be a thing in heaven. There will be no tired. There will be no getting tired in heaven. Your new glorified bodies won't be capable of it. But you want to hear something even cooler? Something even greater? Mental health won't be an issue anymore either. Because your new glorified body will come with a new glorified mind. And there will be no social anxiety. Social anxiety won't exist in heaven. There will be no, uh, no anxiety of any kind. There won't be any panic attacks in heaven. You won't be capable of it. The only thing we'll be capable of doing is enjoying one another's company in heaven. It'll be a tremendous time. A time where while the rest of the world, literally, the rest of the world is on earth being tortured and killed and suffering like humans have never suffered before. We will be in heaven literally having the greatest party the world has ever known. And people get that so backwards. And I want to make that very plain this morning. People think hell is the place where the party is going to take place and heaven is going to be the really long church service that nobody wants to go to. And you've got it backwards. Heaven is the place where the party is going to take place. And hell is the place nobody wants to go to. You don't want to miss that party. Let me tell you something. There'll be the best food you ever had. Forget about Taco Bell. <laughs> There'll be the best food ever created. Uh, you want a glimpse of that? Remember the marriage at Cana? Remember when Jesus turned the water into wine or grape juice? Do not have time to get into that this morning. I just don't. But it wasn't wine. Uh, they didn't have the word grape juice. And that's all I'm going to say about it. So that's why they called it wine. All right. <laughs> Soapbox on. Soapbox over with. But what do they say about that, that when they drink it? They yes. said, usually you start with the best and you work your way down, right? They said, but this, you've saved the best for last. They said, this is the best that's ever been drank. And why was it the best? Because it was created by Jesus. It's, you know, that tasted better than anything the world had ever known. That is the quality of stuff that will be provided at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
the marriage supper of the lamb, it's like, uh, if you know anything about the cultures in that day, it was uh, like a wedding. They have a party after a wedding in that culture, in that time of the, the, the year, that time of the, the history, in that part of the world. And does anybody know how many days that party lasts after the wedding? How many days do people typically stay or used to during these Bible times? Seven days. Seven days. They would stay and they would drink wine and they would enjoy one another's company and they'd eat. And the, the parents had to make sure that there was enough food and enough wine to last seven days. Uh, if you've ever watched that show, The Chosen, that's a big part of it. Because in the wedding at Cana, they were running out of wine on the first day. So, but seven days. And how many years will we be in heaven before the Lord returns to the earth? Seven years. That'd be the best party you ever known. The marriage supper of the Lamb. It's possible that the fruit trees that were in the Garden of Eden will be there. And we'll get to taste the fruit before it was corrupted by the sins of the world. It's going to be a great time. You're not going to want to miss it. I am late being done. Uh, so I want to thank you guys for joining us here at Sunday School. We will be back at, uh, let's say, 10 after for the morning service.